Welcome back. It is the second hour of the Canucks Hour here on Sportsnet 650 today. That's right. We're blowing it out. It's a mega edition, a very, very special supersized edition of Canucks Hour. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Hit that air horn, Faber. Wow. That's wow. right, buddy, because the Canucks made major, major news, made it official this morning after reports came out last night. Patrick Alvin, most recently of the Pittsburgh Penguins, is officially the Canucks' 12th general manager in the team's history. He and President of Hockey Operations Jim Rutherford spoke to the media earlier today. Myself and my co-host Thomas Drance are here to break it all down for you. And we are being overrun with questions in the 650-650 Dunbar Lumber text message inbox. Some coming in on Twitter as well. Always feel free to hit us up on Twitter too. I want to read this one, Drancer, because I've seen a lot of positive reaction to the Alvin hiring from Canucks fans. A lot of positive reaction to what we heard from Rutherford and his new GM earlier today. But, you know, as always in Canucks land, there are dissenting opinions. I wanted to read this one that comes in unsigned. He says, I do not like this GM. Look at what he's done in Pittsburgh as a director of scouting. Really nothing. And now we have this guy leading our group here. And pointing to the draft record in Pittsburgh, which, where, again, Patrick Alvin spent many years uh, first as the director of European scouting and then as the overall director of amateur scouting, so obviously having a massive hand in who they chose to draft, I think that's very fair, and there is a lot to criticize in Pittsburgh's draft record. Now, you have some caveats of the fact that they were constantly moving their first-round pick to throw in there, but it is because, I mean, we, we went through this with Jim Benning, right, where, okay, they're hiring a scout as a general manager that means they're going to all of a sudden nail the draft. And the debate over Jim Benning's draft record, I don't really want to reopen that right now, but it's it's not as simple as that. And with Patrick Alvin specifically now coming in as a general manager, and with the type of front office that Jim Rutherford and now Alvin are building here in Vancouver, Alvin's success as Canucks general manager is not going to hinge on how well he specifically, individually, evaluates amateur talent, right? That is something that he is going to end up delegating to other people in the organization. So I think it's very, very fair to look at the draft record in Pittsburgh and ask questions and maybe poke holes in the draft record in Pittsburgh. But there's also so much more to the job. And so much more that Alvin is going to have to do that will determine ultimately whether he's going to be successful as the general manager here. The amateur side is crucial, obviously. Although, as we discussed, also a renewable resource of picks, right? And You always get more. Well, and that's one way to be open-minded. I mean, you know, Rutherford, I thought, was pretty clear about the fact that he feels he needs more flexibility here. Right. I mean, right off the bat, like we've got some tough decisions to make, talks about a cap space cushion, talks about the need for it. That's that's right. I mean, just like just like draft picks are the lifeblood effectively of of depth within an organization. Right. Cap flexibility is the lifeblood of options, of routes to improve without them, without cap space, you are hosed and with it you can do all sorts of things now as the Canucks look to carve out cap space I mean we've talked at length or actually we haven't really talked at length on this program about 
the Halak option. Well, <laughs> well let's I, I want the... let's get into this this topic specifically because I want to read this from mm. uh, from Andy on Twitter, CSWC from the Capspace Wins Cups podcast. Andy, who says, can you guys discuss the ways Rutherford can create cap space? Who he can cap space? Excuse me, who he can trade and the likelihood of it happening? Potential market market inefficiencies, Abbey players who could make the team next year, etc. It is a really fascinating topic because it's so important. There's so many different avenues to potentially realizing it, but none of them are straightforward. None of them are simple for the Canucks. None of them are simple, no. The, well, one that I'm interested in right off the hop as the Canucks, to pivot pretty naturally from our American League competition, right? One thing you're not able to do in LTI is toll space as you go along in the season, right? So if you're below the cap, every bit you're below the cap daily, because the cap the cap doesn't actually cap accounting doesn't actually be like you have eighty one point five million. It's actually daily. Yes, Every, what, seasons two hundred days long or one hundred ninety eight days long or one hundred ninety two days long, and it's vacillating more often than it usually does because the league keeps needing that flexibility to get full seasons in as a result of the pandemic. But usually, it's like it's a daily toll, and when you're not in LTI and you're below the cap, the amount that you're saving on the cap day to day is added to your total. So by the deadline, you know, it may, might look on cap friendly like you have 75 million committed, but you might actually have the ability to add 10 million or 15 million to your roster in terms of actual caps flexibility depending on in terms how of the AAV it. of the player, right? Yeah, in terms yeah. of the AAV of the player. Yeah. So you're not able to toll daily space in the event that you live in where you're in LTI. So one thing that I'd be curious to see them maybe push to do is offload the Furland deal. In the offseason. Now, there's one year left. The deal itself is uninsured. Um, so it's an expensive way for another team to duck the to duck their own cap issues. You'd probably have to take a salary back. But it's an asset that has actual real value. Because as we saw with uh, Seabrook for yep. Tyler Johnson, like teams that need cap space are often quite happy to trade a salary for a deal that they're going to be able to put off their cap or, or at least... Uh, t- that can become through LTI a cushion or a device to allow them to exceed the cap. So the Furland option is is an interesting one because especially now that the Canucks have a local American League affiliate, right? You're able to toll space really easily with guys who are waiver exempt by sending them down at the end of almost every day. You can bring up a guy to practice by the, by the time 5 p.m. comes around or 5 p.m. Eastern time, 2 p.m. Send them back down. They don't count against your cap. You can roll with like a 21-man roster for much of the season and still have guys locally that can come up for a game if you need an injury replacement. That's one way to maximize your cap space um, and, and a relatively straightforward one for the Canucks that doesn't actually involve them sending a roster player out the door. Uh, guys like Tyler Myers, guys like Oliver ekman Larson, guys on bigger tickets, those are going to be really hard to move. I, I suspect that Travis Hamanick would also be very, very difficult to move because of the cap commitment remaining because of the fact that around the industry he's mostly seen as a third-pair defenseman at this stage of his career, and because of the fact that he's only played seven games this season and we still don't have really any clarity on his timeline or or what injury he's even dealing with at the moment. Uh, Although he does get paid out a signing bonus, so maybe he could be movable after that signing bonus gets paid out. I think he's only due, you know, a, a little bit more beyond that. Like once you've paid him that bonus on, you know, it's probably in September, uh, you know, you only owe him $2 million in salary, so that becomes perhaps more tenable if you retain 
Uh, maybe a team would be interested in 1.5 million in cap hit, 1 million in salary for Travis Hamanick next season. But that's one route available to you. Uh, you know, the Pullman route, I, I still think that Pullman kind of makes sense for this team. Like, I kind of think he makes sense, especially for the way that they're no longer trying to connect on a first pass out of the zone. They're just happy to chase pucks down in the neutral zone. I think Pullman all of a sudden makes a lot more sense for this team under Boudreaux than he did under Travis Green. I know people want to say that it's like, you know, the skilled players, like the players they're excited about are benefiting the most. But as I, I'm watching these games, I'm like, the way that the way that Boudreaux's playing, like that makes a lot Works of sense for Tucker, for Tucker Pullman. Pullman. Yeah, very, you know, never has to make a first pass, just high flippy and let Tyler Mott skate onto it and win a battle in the neutral zone. It's beautiful. Uh, so, you know, but but that would be a contract. I think you'd struggle to move that without taking money back yep. because of the term remaining. But I do wonder, because of his defensive contributions and, and a relatively unique combination of being a right-handed guy with good four-way mobility and size, if if perhaps you could find a way out of that deal uh, without taking money back. Uh, Jason Dickinson, we got to talk about Jason Dickinson. That's the one that jumps out immediately. That bet just hasn't worked out yep. for this team. I don't think it's worked out for the player here. Um, his route to unsupporting the JT Miller against the wall in overtime cost him the game last night. Like, that was a really brutal mistake. And and I've been a big Dickinson supporter throughout his uh, struggles in Vancouver. You know, I, I like the defensive game five-on-five. Five. I like the rangy um, ability that he has to check against top players. I like his versatility uh, on the wing and at center. Uh, I think he can be a disruptive presence. It It's just it, the fit just hasn't been there for him. And he's making two six five. 2.65 million uh, for two more years beyond this. It just hasn't worked out. And when you hear the constant emphasis on speed from yeah. Alvin, from Rutherford, when you see how that's been put into practice by Jim Rutherford, that's not a stylistic fit for Jason Dickinson either. So again, it's, it's, it's always tough when you acquire the player, right? And, and it was a third round pick that Jim Benning gave up because of the expansion draft situation that Dallas was in. And, a pretty reasonable bet to make. Pretty reasonable contract to sign Jason Dickinson for. His value has gone down since then because of the way it's worked. So it's impossible or it's hard to say exactly what the market for Jason Dickinson would be. But he can play a role as a defensive player for a team. And I've we've heard Elliot Friedman mention that, you know, hey, teams that are going to the playoffs, that's the kind of guy that they are often interested in, right? Somebody who can reliably play in your bottom six against other teams' top lines. Is that going to be realistic when he still has two years left? I'm not sure. But so. that's a player that, again, if you're just looking beyond the the headliner items that we're going to get to in a second, like the JT Millers and the Brock Bessers, farther down the well, roster. Yeah, I'm trying to avoid getting into the big the big names, right? But Dickinson, Dickinson's one to watch, both through, both through a potential trade route, Jamie, but also the contract structure is an interesting one. Um, because it is sneaky, um, team friendly from a bio a perspective. Buyout. Yeah, it's a it's a backloaded deal, which which you know just like Holpe and Vertanen, uh, I think gives the Canucks some tempting options outside of the trade market. Um, you know, then you get into core guys. Like from there, you get into guys who are if not core, they're at least core adjacent. They're your Tanner Pearsons at the low end, uh, and at the high end, your JT Millers and your Bo Horvats and your Connor Garlands. Um, oh, we didn't mention Halak, but that's that's another one. Uh, no movement clause. Don't think there's a ton of appetite to waive. 
but you got to kick the tires on it, yes. especially with Spencer Martin playing well, and especially because the moment he plays two more games, from my understanding. Now, I, you know, there are cap issues that are far more complicated than what I can explain. Like, I'm not... Uh, you know, I'm very familiar with it, and I spend a lot of time looking into and trying to get answers to these questions. But by no means am I, um, you know, a hockey operations level uh, a capologist. Level capologist. Yeah. By no, by no stretch of the imagination. And although I often talk about these things with confidence, um, because, <laughs> because I've looked into them, like I want to be clear that uh, you know, presenting this with all humility. Right. But I believe that it is true that in the event that Halak plays two more games for the Canucks, the moment that ten game played bonus is triggered it is paid out and it is on their cap they can't then navigate it simply by offloading him right so the moment he plays that game 1.25 million added to next year's cap um that's going to be that's going to be tough that's one to navigate very tactfully and diplomatically because i don't think the player um has any interest in you know being moved uh he's got his family settled here he negotiated hard for that right the deal was signed with the idea that it was a $3 million deal structured creatively, that there is a lot there that you'd have to be going back on. And I know my colleague, Rick Dollywall insists that, you know, that's not going to be a thing that happened. I think you even went off on Donnie and Dolly. He was like, Drancer, Drancer started this whole thing. <laughs> was, okay. Okay. Ricky. Um, <laughs> so, but, but, you know, it's an interesting one that you have to look at and explore if possible, just because, you know, you, you've got a you've got a goalie at the veteran minimum now who's played really well for two games. If you're not going to make the playoffs anyway, like what what's the real benefit of ten games of Halak over ten games of Spencer Martin, considering where the Canucks are? I'm not saying there's no benefit in terms of player quality. There is. It's just that those games don't matter right. in the big picture for this team. In all likelihood, the, although the flexibility matters more that they would gain from being more, able to move far more. If if your if your goal is to win a cup, yes, no question. So. It's a it's a complicated one. That's that's the other option, and and we can transition to talking about core guys if you if you want to. Yeah, sure. Let's let's get into keep that. playing fantasy hockey because Jamie. there's lots of uh, there's lots of <laughs> questions coming in six fifty six fifty to the Dunbar Lumber text line. Vikingstad says my takeaway from the press conference is with all of the talk of tough decisions and the need for speed. If Besser doesn't get extended by the deadline. I'm feeling like he's more likely to be moved than Miller is. Am I pulling that out of the air, or is there substance there? And I think the easiest way to answer that, and look, I'm not an insider, so I'm not going to say, oh, they're definitely not trading Besser, or they're definitely considering trading Besser, but every indication that we've seen publicly from Jim Rutherford and that we've seen throughout his career as a hockey executive, he's not going to take moves off the table like that. Right, And I know our own Satyar Shah was reporting earlier this week on Sportsnet 650 on Canucks Central that from what he hears from the Canucks organization, basically they only see three true untouchables on the roster, and it's the exact three guys you would think. It's Thatcher Demko, Elias Pettersson, and Quinn Hughes. So, you know, the, the, the way of looking at it as will they move Besser or Miller, I mean, I think I understand that framework, but... I also think Jim Rutherford would probably be open to potentially moving both of them if the right deals were out there, right? I, I just think when Jim Rutherford says there's big decisions to be made, we shouldn't take that lightly, right? He's not just talking about, oh, hey, we got to find a way to offload Jason Dickinson's contract. He's talking about real, legitimate, foundational, you know, foundation-shaking moves on this team. That doesn't mean they'll all come to fruition, but this is not a fiddle-around-the-margins exercise for Jim Rutherford and Patrick Alvin now, right? So 
any of those beyond those big three players, Demko, Quinn Hughes, and Elias Pettersson, and I would probably throw Bo Horvat as the captain and the fact that he plays center and the fact that he's younger than JT Miller in there as well. Beyond that, I think really realistically pretty much anything is on the table for the Canucks at this point. We'll have to see. I mean, I'm surprised that 53 wouldn't be included in that. I'm, I'm surprised about Bo Horvat. Um, you know, Bo Horvat for me is a really good, really good. Like he's a, you know, low end top line caliber centerman who wins draws and scores offense reliably. You know, you, the, the comp that I drop is kind of like a, a Braden Shen type player for me. And then you throw in that there's never a moment that Bo Horvat shrinks from, right? Bo yep. Horvat is at his best when the pressure is up, and that is a hard attribute to reliably find. Like, I don't even believe in clutch, and Bo- I think Bo Horvat's clutch. <laughs> um, you know, I would be I would be very, very careful about trading a person and player of that quality, especially considering this market and how ably he navigates it. I have I think a very hard time seeing it. Very, very I, hard I think time. there's unique value. Now, that said, I don't think Bo Horvat would only have unique value from a Canucks perspective. I think there's some teams that would love, love nothing more than to, uh, you know, get their hands on a on a Horvat quality person and player too. So, um, you know, maybe maybe over the course of conversations um, regarding what an extension looks like, that the determination is made that the club is closer to a cup with the assets they'd gather for. Bo Horvat then for then by keeping him, but I have a really hard time seeing that path forward for this club. That, yeah, just just straight up. Um, you know, I honestly don't think it's a straightforward path with JT Miller either. I know that people want to do the old thing we often do in this market, like don't resign that guy. He's so old. But it's like for me, the JT Miller one is not clear cut. There is not an obvious path forward here, and and I think people saying you know it's obvious to trade him. He's twenty eight or whatever. Um, you know, I, I think that's too simplistic when you're talking about a player of JT Miller's caliber. Certainly, I don't think that's a move that has to happen by the deadline. I think I think you can wait and bide your time on that one in the event that you want to, in the event that you want to see exactly what other options you have over the course of the summer. And then let's get to Besser because the question began with Brock Besser. Yes. Now, Besser is entitled to a $7.5 million qualifying offer, which means that in order to retain his... RFA rights this summer, the Canucks have to make him a contract offer that is equivalent to $7.5 million over one year. Now, I believe that Brock Besser, because he didn't toll a year toward free agency when he played those nine games back in 16-17, I believe that he is still two years removed from unrestricted free agency, not one, the way you'd expect most players who've um, had the length of career that he has um, you know, to, to be. Uh, he's got 19 points and 10 goals in 36 games. So we're looking at a player who's probably on pace for 45-ish points over 82. Uh, that's not a $7.5 million nope. player. So um, at least production-wise, right? That's not a $7.5 million case anyway. So one option that you have with players in these circumstances are to take them to arbitration. And in fact, you can seek to reduce their salary, something the Canucks once did with Mason Raymond back in the day. I don't know if anyone will remember that deep cut. But there is a type of arbitration, it's team-elected, where you can actually seek to roll back a player's salary. Now, you do that... That's an extreme option. Not, if you do that, you're not you're not likely to end up with a long-term agreement with a player. But you're also, you know, you're, you're, 
you also conduct the negotiation with the shape of both options in mind. It's like, yes, you're entitled to this, but we're entitled to this. If we want to do a long-term deal, we can meet somewhere in the middle. Um, that is definitely a route open to the Canucks and to Brock Besser's camp should they decide to explore it. There's tons of ways forward there. I know that everyone around both the team and Brock Besser's camp are you know, uh, careful about wading into this, especially in this market, as they should be. Um, you know, Besser's name has been in, on the tip of the tongue in every trade rumor, it seems, over the course of years and years. Uh-huh. And and here's the here's the simple fact of the matter is that Besser is really good. Besser is really good. He might not be a template Jim Rutherford player because of the foot speed, but Brock Besser is sneaky good on the wall, super strong in puck battles. He's got a great shot, like a really unique shot, uh, and he's a really headsy, clever offensive player, crafty. Um, there's a lot about Brock Besser's game that I like. I don't think it's easy to get better replacing a player like Besser personally. Um, so, you know, it, I would lean if I was the Canucks trying to find that middle ground long-term solution, like a four or five year, six year deal in that range takes him into, you know, early thirties. That's like the night, that's the right age to do this type of pact. You've got two RFA deals, albeit arbitration eligible RFA deals to use to keep the cap hit down and backload the deal so that it starts at 7.5 million salary. Like to me, that makes the most sense. That would be like my, my top recommendation, but um, could the Canucks explore a variety of other options, including just the qualifying offer option, just the arbitration option, or perhaps a trade? I mean, sure, you can see it. Um, but, you know, Brock Besser is really, really good, and it's really important to undergird any discussion of his status with that fact because it can get overlooked, especially because he has had some of the worst offensive luck I've ever seen this year. I think his, I think his five-on-five sh- shooting percentage, personal shooting percentage, is under 4% on the season on the season. And this is a guy who's got the rare ability to beat set NHL goaltenders with his own shot. Um, that's not going to last. Besser is going to go on a heater at some point over the back half of the season. I have no question about it. And for me, uh, he's really, really good. The other difference between the Besser conversation and the Miller trade conversation is part of the attraction to exploring a Miller deal right now is the idea that you're trading him at the peak of his value, right? Or it's something close to the peak of his value because he still has the extra year left because he's been so productive in Vancouver. And with Besser, you're not getting that. Obviously, this is not the peak of Brock Besser's value when you're in the middle of a, of a frustrating season, an, an unlucky season in part, as you're outlining there. When you're in the middle of this type of season and you have that qualifying offer situation coming up in the offseason, that's going to lessen the interest from a lot of teams. So you're giving up on a talent, a talent that you've invested a lot in, and you're not doing it when you can get the most maximal return. And again, I think that's why a lot of people, when you just kind of look at, okay, plausible core star level players on this team that who could, who could be traded, it might make a lot more sense to explore JT Miller. I want to bring up a smart text in from Sean, which is the risk of with punting on the JT Miller trade is you also probably push the timeline of when the returned assets can help your team a year out as well. That's an interesting point. I think that's a really interesting point. It's why, you know, if you are looking to compete again or contend in a couple of years, you know, maybe you do prefer some of those NHL level prospects as opposed to the type of um, 
first round pick that I've been advocating for this organization to go get that rolls over year over year and finally becomes unprotected and you and you cross your fingers and hope that you've bet against the right team and you get a top five. Um, you know, maybe that does make sense if you do want to accelerate the timeline. Maybe then, in the event you're talking trade with something like the with a team like the Minnesota Wild, you're you're preferring a guy like Beckman as opposed to a guy like Lambos, um, who's closer, even though maybe the defender uh, maybe fits in your eye in your mind's eye as yep. a better fit long term for the team. So it, it, that's an interesting thing to consider. Uh, something that I hadn't sort of uh, concerned, but um, but yeah, I, I like the idea that uh, I like the idea that in fact, if you're going to maximize your return timeline from a Miller deal, there is perhaps some incentive to go faster as opposed to waiting until this off season. Um, and then there's a lot of people quibbling with the Horvat or with my Besser takes. <laughs> a lot of people talking about the low percentage uh, shooting percentage being a product of his shot. His shot's fine, guys. It's fine. It's not about that. It's about luck. Like, it's been about bad luck all season. It's been a really tough run for him in terms of the bounces, and, and that's not going to last. He is an above-average shooter. He's an above-average finisher. He's an above-average playmaker. He spent his whole career with an elevated say, percent, uh, shooting percentage. That's going to come back, period. Stop it. Uh, <laughs> somebody else texted in, uh, guys, Besser's super strong on puck battles. Is there someone else called Besser you're watching? That's from BJ in no. North Van. He's good. He's good on the wall. He, he wins he, those battles. He wasn't in the first 20 games of the season, I'd say, because you know he did – sustain an injury right before training camp opened um you know he he told me back in november that he was a step slow to battles and and that he felt it was impacting his game but if you go watch him in recent games you're seeing that core strength play again on the wall and when it does that's when he's at his best uh, Canucks Hour here, Sportsnet 650. Final segment of a supersized edition is coming up, continuing to react to Patrick Alvine stepping in as the general manager of the Canucks. Also, what we heard about the state of the team, the future of the team from Jim Rutherford and Patrick Alvine when they spoke to the media earlier today. Keep your texts coming in. 650, 650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Your questions, thoughts, comments, concerns about everything we've heard from the Canucks today. All that is coming up next. It's the home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. Well, I uh, remember meeting a, a 17-year-old uh, tiny uh, kid for lunch in Sundsvall, Sweden. I think he had uh, schnitzel. Um, and he was going to buy a, uh, buy a, a draft suit after. Um, obviously, he's a, he's a high talented player. Um, very impressive uh, transition from 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 um, the SHL in Sweden uh, to uh, the NHL. Um, I still think there is a lot of room for him to grow. Um, I will. Um, I'm pretty sure that that. Uh, um, that that he has even more potential to become a better player, um, a better leader, um, and all that regards with with more maturity um, and guidance here in, in the next couple of years. That is the Canucks' new general manager Patrick Alvine speaking about what he recalls from the 2017 draft process as it relates specifically, of course to Elias Pettersson, and at the time, Alvin was the director of European scouting for the Penguins, so he would have been heavily involved in scouting Elias Pettersson for them, and I, I enjoyed that anecdote specifically. I think he had the schnitzel at, well, that, at that lunch. And, and um, you know, presumably an amateur scouting director meeting a 
17-year-old player they're describing themselves as tiny um, would have offered to buy him a second schnitzel. <laughs> um, I actually have my own story. That it reminds me, I uh, Pedersen came in on draft day, the day that the Canucks made him the fifth overall selection. He came in to do a pre-draft interview with the Florida Panthers. We were picking 10th that year. Yeah. And uh, we mic'd him up. So we mic'd up every – we always mic'd up every uh, – guy who came in for the pre-draft meetings because if we picked them, it could be part of a really right. cool featurette, right? Um, obviously, Pedersen was long gone before uh, we made that selection. Uh, I think it was Owen Tippett's draft year for the Panthers. But um, I do re- I do recall he came in and his draft suit was um, electric blue, sharp, very sharp. But I, too, remember just being like, wow, this is um, – this kid is very, very uh, slight. Um, <laughs> and then and then I remember watching, because I was obviously following uh, Canucks, the Canucks still very closely. I remember watching all those highlights and just being like, oh, my goodness. Oh my, Not oh my, bad. This guy's unreal. This is incredible. Um, so uh, that, was a, that was a good – look, schnitzel's delicious. Oh, I was going to say, shout out to schnitzel. <laughs> Absolutely fantastic. It's hard to go wrong when you order and the katsu schnitzel. katsu, too. Katsu, too. I want to shout out katsu as well. In fact, I just and, – and, and, um, and scallopini. Honestly, I just want to shout out, like, crushed breaded meat <laughs> of all kinds. Big fan. I was going to say I'm a big fan of – I like, I, obviously, they were in Sweden. I associate uh, – I associate – schnitzel with germany german oh, really? food yes and my my wife is of german descent I mean, i'm a big fan of german cuisine in general fair right? enough the, the bratwurst the schnitzel the spatula all of it delicious i uh I, I once went to well i once went i spent a summer in berlin and i remember toward the end of that summer i, I made my way by train to munich munchen and i remember i'd like eaten really heavily because i was in germany and i was drinking a lot and having a nice time and I, I went for like uh, to a beer hall, and I was like, you know, I just want a light meal. And I recognized the German word for salad on the menu, so I tried to order the the the, the salad, and uh, and it arrives, and it was a um, it was a sausage salad. <laughs> it was just like a bunch of cold sausage. I was just like, oh perfect. My I have failed miserably at the task at hand. Um, can we pivot? I really want to pivot a little bit and talk about the Canucks' roster situation, and in particular the situation in net because, you know, I I wasn't able to do the Bruce Boudreaux zoom following a very optional practice in which Thatcher Demko skated beforehand. Um, Mike DiPietro and six skaters were the only guys on the ice for the Canucks, but Demko remains in COVID protocol and will not make the trip. Boudreaux said, told the media following the practice. And I'm really curious to see if Spencer Martin gets another shot. I, I think he's going to get the game on Thursday. It just feels that way. You know, we don't exactly know how much Halak has had an opportunity to skate. I'd imagine he's been skating. I would be completely unsurprised if he was skating with Garland in yep. Boston and that they traveled together. Um, so he's probably been facing some NHL shots, but not in the most structured environment, right? Not the same as practicing with a team. Are they going to just hold morning skate in Winnipeg and throw a guy who hasn't even had an NHL practice in 14 days into a game against the Winnipeg Jets following that layoff? Or are you going to go with the guy who's played three, you know, two games in the last five days and has been practicing with the club consistently while Hallock has been on ice effectively as a result of COVID protocol and the border issue? I'm really curious to see exactly how they line that up. And I thought Bruce Boudreaux's commentary on it both last night and today suggested that, in fact, we may see 
Martin get one more chance, hopefully, to win his first NHL game with the Canucks because he deserves he it. He certainly has earned it. I mean, certainly obviously, it. you know, in normal conditions, we would have been doing a deep dive on what we saw here at Rogers Arena last night against the Oilers. That gets pushed way farther down the priority list by the, the Patrick Alvin news, but... Spencer Martin was fantastic last night. Oh, so good. He was sensational. Yes, and it's incredible. It is obviously immediately the, the conversation turns to, okay, hey, adverse circumstances force you to call this guy up. Are there longer-term implications of any sort about what you're seeing from Spencer Martin? And I, that's an interesting conversation, but I also think we just have to focus on Spencer Martin is playing incredibly well for the Vancouver Canucks when he's gotten his opportunity and you're right it was really disappointing just from a, a human perspective for him not to get that kind of big marquee win against Connor McDavid and the Oilers but there could be more yeah, chances he's face down the Panthers and the Oilers good like yeah like well hey. welcome to the show again guy <laughs> here's Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl oh and by the way we don't have a lot of our forwards who would normally yeah. be playing against them yeah. so there you go have fun yeah well and I mean, enjoy that he had one mistake like one mistake, and you know it did. It was costly, but he played so well. He bounced back in a major way from that mistake. And Drysital and McDavid put on like an absolute clinic in overtime, and he was up to the task until the two on one. Yeah, I mean, incredible. Honestly, just an incredible performance. A great story. Uh, again, I think there's been some work done. Like, the fact that he had this time in Abbotsford, that they've had those three goaltenders, I think he's put in a lot of work with Curtis Sanford down there. I think he's done a, a tremendous job uh, modernizing, updating his game, changing the way he plays to be a little bit more in line with how the Canucks want their goalies to play. Yep. Um, the Canucks have those ideas for a reason. They, they keep churning them out. Um, and, and Ian Clark will get a lot of the credit, and he deserves a lot of the credit, clearly, for the work that he's done overall overseeing this system as, as both the club's goalie coach and director of goaltending, but also uh, Curtis Sanford's been the guy on the ground with, with Spencer Martin, and look, he got him prepared. I mean, he was prepared to step in NHL games. He's earned the Canucks two points in two starts with massively undermanned rosters. Like, tip of your cap. I'd love to, I'd love to see him get a win. I'd just love to see him get a win. Oh, of course. Because... Man, he's played well. He's earned it. It would be awesome. And I you know everyone. Awesome. You know everyone up and down the organization, from the players and Sanford, Ian Clark, the, the staff. Everyone would love to see him get rewarded with that big moment and with the win. We actually had a question come in earlier about that. Question for Drance from an unsigned texter: How much time do the guys in Abbotsford get with Ian Clark as opposed to Curtis Sanford? And obviously, there's a working relationship between yeah, and I don't the two really goalie know. coaches. I don't really know. I don't have like a good answer for. Yeah how often Ian Clark has gotten down there, but obviously he's on the road with the team. He's working every day with the NHL goaltenders. I'm sure there's some crossover. I know that, you know, Clark and Sanford work well together, but I, I, I don't know how much time Clark spends running them through the types of drills that he does with his NHL goalies every single day. It's also interesting because we've talked a lot today and on this show regularly about all of the challenges facing the Canucks, and especially now that Jim Rutherford has his front office in place and they try to, you know, go f move from the evaluation stage to the, okay, answering. We're, we're Right now they're figuring out which questions need to be answered. Then you have to move to how do we actually go about answering them if we want this team to compete for a Stanley Cup. There's a lot of challenges. Again, we've detailed those challenges one of the areas that is not going to be high on the priority list for Patrick Alvin is the team's goaltending department, right? Because that has, as you said, that has consistently in recent years been a strength. And whatever 
whatever happens with Spencer Martin, right, whether this great story that we're seeing develop, if it continues to play out and he continues to get NHL chances, if he figures in their plans as a potential backup down the road, whatever the case is, it just reinforces that at least there's this one area, not that it's perfect, not that you can just, okay, set it and forget it now, but at least there's this one area of organizational strength that the new front office can rely on in the short term as they look to modernize and update and strengthen so many, so much else of what is happening with the team and their development process. It's, it's hard, right? It's hard. And the teams that do it well, like there's a reason that the teams that do it well succeed to such a great extent, right? I mean, the Tampa Bay Lightning and the Pittsburgh Penguins are kind of the model for for developing kind of out of nowhere talent consistently, and look how many cups they've won in the last seven year, eight years, right? I also do think, typically speaking, like I do think that player development as a science or an art, and it's more of an art uh, among NHL teams. Like there is a science to it. I don't know that there's been a ton of work really drilling down on and quantifying how exactly it should function. Um, you know, I'm sure that some teams have uh, have put that work in and are working toward refining it, but I, I don't know that we're at the point where, you know, we have a as good an understanding of, like, basic principles of, like, are you better off marinating in the AHL or in the OHL? Are you better off playing a lot of minutes in a lower league or learning how to compete in the NHL? Like, there's so many different questions, and it, it feels like it depends on each player it's not like the draft where we sort of have this basic idea of like best player available and right. you know pick defensemen later in the draft focus on forwards early don't take goalies in the first round like there's all these sort of like basic rules or basic probability things that we understand uh, only draft guys who scored a lot at lower levels because they'll <laughs> be the checkers in the NHL yep. right like there's all these rules like there's this understanding we have a, a certain level of probability that we can assign to team decisions we we don't have that type of uh, viewpoint into player development. We just know it when we see it. We just know which teams are capitalizing, it seems, at a more efficient level than others. But again, how do you separate that from player procurement and recruitment? Um, again, in indirect science, I don't know that there's a ton of teams that do um, that do a much better job than the others, but the, the ones that we really do think do, uh, they net significant benefits over long over long periods of time. Andy, the Park Ranger, texts in and keep your thoughts coming in. Final few minutes of the show here. Six fifty, six fifty is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Andy, the Park Ranger, texts in. Hearing about all the work that Rutherford and Alvin need to get done to get the organization back to being a top tier franchise in this league really puts into perspective how ridiculous the Benning era was. You can't be a desirable destination for players when you don't have a well staffed and organized management team. That's from Andy the park ranger and one of the things that struck me today listening to patrick alvin but also listening to emily castingay earlier in the week when she was hired as an assistant general manager is and and i thought it was especially noticeable with castingay because her reputation as a really tough-minded negotiator as an agent right someone who's has the reputation as as a shark as an agent which you need to be to be a successful nhl player agent she has she knows the ins and outs of the salary cap. She has that ability to negotiate contracts. All of that really important high level technical expertise that she brings to an organization. But we also heard and we saw in her press conference and we hear from people around the industry that she has an incredible emotional intelligence as well, an ability to build relationships, an ability to build really strong relationships. She knows how to treat people 
not just as hockey players, but as people to get the most out of them, to forge those really strong relationships. We've heard a little bit of that about Patrick Alvin as well, right? That he is a relationship person, that he has a sense of humor, that he knows how to treat people. We heard him talk about how he felt in the Pittsburgh organization, right? That he was always extremely well-treated by Jim Rutherford. And the other thing we've heard is that that philosophy, right, how you operate like that and how you treat people in the front office, it's going to trickle down throughout the rest of your organization. If you have that mentality coming from the very top, and again, Castingay and Alvin have said that's what they get from Jim Rutherford, that's what they've experienced from Jim Rutherford. If you have that kind of combination of the technical expertise but married with those soft people skills, whatever you want to call it, emotional intelligence – that's going to trickle down through the rest of the organization. And to to Andy, the park ranger's point, I think ultimately you need both of those to be a re- to be really successful at recruiting players and pitching yourself as a top tier destination. You need to have that proven track record of competence, the confidence from players that yeah, we're building a winner here. This is a place where you can come and have success. But you need to know how to interact with players, how to build those relationships, and it's the kind of thing that. You know, we'll see how it plays out from a Canucks perspective over the years as they as they go about this process. But to me, that's been one of the really interesting threads since Jim Rutherford has taken over, placing that importance on not just finding people who are great scouts, not just finding people who know the salary cap, but setting that kind of organizational-wide culture of we're going to treat people the right way, and ultimately that's going to try that's going to pay dividends on the ice for us as well. It's it's definitely an interesting thought, and you got to win in the boardroom to win on the ice. You have to, and and Rutherford has echoed that comment mul- a multiplicity of times since he took over. Right? If you're not making the right decisions constantly, here's the other thing: you you, you have to be maximizing value all over the place. You yep. need to be efficient. This is a hard capped league. In a hard capped league, right? You are effectively at parity in terms of what you can spend on your lineup, right? So the way to win is you have to be more efficient than everyone else in almost every area, right? Like the because teams are so good at managing their own rosters now. I mean, look at what Carolina's done. Look at what Toronto's done. Look at what Florida's done. Look at what Tampa Bay has done and sustained. You know, yes, you need the star player, but we all know that hockey is dependent on so much more than just having the great top end, right? You also need a great goalie. You also need a defense core that fits within your overall uh, team view and can hold up over the course of a long playoff run. You also need a ton of depth. You need to be able to plug and play guys over the course of a long season. It's a contact sport. There's tons of injuries. You need so much to go your way, and then you need a huge dose of luck along the way. Like, it is... Honestly, wild how difficult it's become to run a competitive hockey team and the advantages that accrue to the teams that win consistently, that aren't dependent on goaltending, that that actually can make their own luck, that can control fate, can can control play, drive play to the point that they're able to withstand the, you know, uh, whims of, of the hockey gods, the bad luck that you encounter over the course of a season. Like, those are the teams that win. You need to be, like, one of the best in the league at one aspect of hockey operations. Like, the Tampa Bay Lightning, Not it's not just their late-round drafting. Like, what's their superpower? It's it's cap manipulation. 
right? They're the best at managing their cap. They're also extraordinarily efficient. Um, undrafted players have been major contributors for them. Late round picks obviously is a huge part of their story. And then, and then they get guys, especially their core guys to lock up at a below market rate, right? That pushes everyone down. And now they've gotten to this point where like Stamkos and Hedman sort of put a cap on what they could pay UFAs that's proved extraordinarily sticky as they've negotiated with the Vasilevskis and the Kucherovs of the world and the Braden points. But then, but then they bridged Kucherov. They held firm on Kucherov and bridged Kucherov. And now they have this play that they do where it's like the Braden point model. Exactly. You, you grind the guy on their bridge deal. And then the moment, the day they're eligible for the long-term extension, it's nine, five times eight. Like that's what you get for doing the solid the for us on the bridge. Like it's a whole system related to, and and you sort of put it all together and you step back and you look at how well they've done and, and how they've done it and, and how much thoughtfulness it's taken to execute. Um, you know, that's the task at hand. That's where the Canucks need to get to. They're making moves that I think look good in terms of putting that into, into, into practice but there's a long way to go. It is one thing to recruit good people. It is another to execute at the type of level that the best teams in this league do consistently year after year and sustain that level of execution in the boardroom for long enough that it matters and plays out consistently on the ice. And as much as reshaping the roster is a major challenge, going to be a major challenge for Alvin and Rutherford, making sure they get the most out of the talent in the boardroom that they've acquired is going to be Equally important for the team as well. Just as a quick programming note, right here on Sportsnet 650 on Canucks Central of Satyar Shah and Dan Riccio, the new general manager of the Canucks, Patrick Alvin, he will join them at 4 o'clock today. So make sure you tune into that. Finally, that's going to do it for us. It was a two-hour edition of Canucks Hour. Thanks for all the feedback. Great text coming in throughout the whole course of the two hours. We really appreciate it. Don't forget... Subscribe to the podcast, Spotify, Apple, Google, wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a five-star rating and review as well. You've got it on the home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650.